0: Good afternoon everyone. Does God love you? Some people doubt that God loves them or may wonder whether God really does love them or not. There are not a few people who feel wholly unloved, especially victims of abuse or neglect, often may think not only that no one else loves them but that God Himself does not love them. Many people do not believe in God at all or know much about God, if anything, and may never even think to ask the question, does God love me? But for other people, the question, does God love me, is one to which they desire a firm answer, and whether they realize it or not, everyone needs to know the answer to that question. We need to understand, first of all, that God is the Creator of all the universe and of all mankind. In Acts 17, we read, beginning with verse 24, God who made the world and everything in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He worshiped with men's hands as though He needed anything, since He gives to all life, breath, and all things. And He has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, he was in Athens speaking to a Greek audience. And he went on to say, for we are also his offspring, his children, so to speak. So as Paul pointed out, we owe our existence to God. And in it's in God that we live and move and have our being. In other words, without God, we would be doing none of these things. First of all, we wouldn't even exist. But life would be impossible, or any of the activities of life would be impossible were it not for God's presence, for what God has done to make life possible, and what He continues to do. So given the fact that we are God's offspring, or His children, and that he is directly involved in our lives in ways that we probably don't even realize most of the time or even think about. Does It not seem likely that God would love us. We're told that God is the giver of every good thing. In James 1, Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So every gift that we have, everything we enjoy in life, comes from God. God explicitly, in various places in the Bible, proclaimed His love for the patriarchs. In Deuteronomy 4 and verse 35, God told Israel, To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord Himself is God, there, there is none other besides him. Out of heaven, he let you hear his voice that he might instruct you. On earth, he showed you his great fire, and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them. So here God says expressly that he loved the fathers of the children of Israel, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and others. And he brought you out of Egypt with his presence, with his mighty power, driving out from before you nations greater greater and mightier than you to bring you in to give you their land as an inheritance, as it is this day. Therefore, know this day and consider it in your heart that the Lord himself is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. God also explicitly expresses a number of places in the scriptures His love for Israel, the people of Israel. And in making these statements, God doesn't appear to leave anyone out. Israel became a nation of millions of people. And we don't know how many Israelites have actually lived and died down through history, but probably into the billions by now. And notice what God said here. In Deuteronomy 7 and verse 6, to the people of Israel, he said, You are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any other people, for you were the least of all peoples, but because the Lord loves you. And because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So here God tells the people of Israel that it wasn't because they were so great that God delivered them and chose them above the other nations of the earth, but it was because he loved them. In Ezekiel 16 God uses the metaphor of a foundling that he took pity on and saved. The foundling is a, a child that, is, and, and this has been common in many societies, a child that is not wanted at the time of birth, is just thrown out like a piece of trash and allowed to die. Not all that dissimilar to what we're doing in our society today through abortion. This has been common practice down through history, unfortunately. And God uses the metaphor of a foundling that he took pity on and saved and of a wife with whom he entered into a marriage covenant in Ezekiel 16. He's speaking of Israel. And he said in verse 2, Ezekiel 16, Son of man caused Jerusalem to know her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your birth and your nativity are from the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. As for your nativity, on the day that you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you, and you were not rubbed with salt nor wrapped in swaddling uh, cloths. No, I pitied you, to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you, but you were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. I made you thrive like a plant in the field, and you grew, matured, and became very beautiful. Your breasts were formed and your hair grew, but you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed, your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you. And this is a common expression was at that time for protecting and entered into a marriage covenant and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you and you became mine, says the Lord God. Then I washed you in water, yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood and anointed you with oil, clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. I put a jewel in your nose, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate pastry of fine flour, honey, and oil. You were exceedingly beautiful and succeeded to royalty. Your fame went out among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through my splendor, which I had bestowed on you, says the Lord God. Now note that Jerusalem in this prophecy, as in many prophecies, is is a figure of speech called a synecdoche, For the nation of Israel, where in this type of figure of speech, a part of a thing is spoken of for the whole, and in this case, the city of Jerusalem is used in referring to the entirety of Israel, the entire nation. And Israel, from a physical standpoint, originated in Canaan. Abraham had settled in Canaan. His son Isaac was born in Canaan and Isaac's son Jacob was born in Canaan. Jacob's sons, the progenitors of the 12 tribes of Israel, spent much of their lives in Canaan and migrated to Egypt from Canaan. Israel from a spiritual standpoint had in the process over the generations absorbed many of the customs of the Canaanites. So. From a physical standpoint and from a spiritual standpoint in many respects, Israel was of Canaan and yet despite that, God loved Israel, took her and cleansed her and made her his own covenant nation, speaking of her not only as a foundling child which he loved but also as a wife. And the metaphor of a son is also used of Israel. In Hosea 11 and verse 1, we read, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So we have a child that God took pity on, an infant that had been cast out, a wife, a beloved wife, and a son. All of these metaphors used. Of the relationship between God and the people of Israel. And all of those of course evoke an idea of love. There are many other scriptures in which God's love for Israel, the people of Israel, both past, present, and future is explicitly expressed in scripture. And so that means that if you are of Hebrew or Israelite descent, then By His express statements over and over, God tells us that He loves us, that He loves you. And that would include, as far as descendants of Israelite lineage are concerned, that would include many in this nation and other nations whose peoples are largely descended from the tribes that had settled in the British Isles and portions of West and Northwest Europe up to the modern era. It would include the Jewish people who have been scattered all over the earth in various nations. But what about other people? Does God love only the Israelites or does God love non-Israelites as well? The Bible tells us explicitly in many places that God loves not only the people of Israel, but that God loves all peoples, that God loves every human being, it tells us that God loves the strangers, the Gentiles, the non Israelite people. In Acts 17, we already read in verse 26 that God made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him though He is not far from each one of us. God desires that all people of the earth have a relationship with Him, a positive kind of relationship. In Deuteronomy 10 and verse 17, God was speaking to the people of Israel, and He said, The Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger. And loves the stranger. The stranger is the foreigner, the non-Israelite, giving him food and clothing. The blessings that people all over the earth have enjoyed are blessings that have come from God. And so he told the people of Israel, therefore love the stranger for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. God has demonstrated His love for all mankind, not only in creating us and providing for us in many different ways, but He gave Jesus Christ His only Son, His only Son in the sense that He too was God, the second person of the Godhead who had been miraculously changed into a fleshly human being, and God gave His beloved Son, as a sacrifice to pay for our sins. In John 3 and verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world, meaning the people in the world, all the people who have dwelt on this earth, past, present, and future. And it says that God loved them, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God has opened the door to eternal life to every human being who's ever lived or ever will live through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And Jesus Christ himself declared his love for us and for all mankind by giving his life for us. For the sins of mankind, God commanded us to love our enemies. We might ask, does God love even those humans who are his enemies? He tells us to love our enemies. Does God love his enemies? In Romans 5, verse 6, we read, For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Yes, Jesus Christ died for us, not because of our righteousness, but because we were sinners in need of deliverance. We were enemies of God. And yet, He thought enough of us, He loved us, to the point that he was willing to sacrifice his own life to pay for our sins. Now the world today and for 6,000 years has been and is at enmity with God. The world hates God. It hates the idea of God ruling it. And the world has given itself over to sin, lawlessness, and rebellion against God. And yet, Christ died for the ungodly. But God has a plan in place wherein the world will ultimately be reconciled to Him through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ's death is a part of that plan, a very important, critical, key part of that plan to eventually reconcile the world with God, a world which hates God, but a world which God loves. That is, God loves the people in it. He doesn't love the the society, the way the world is, but he does love the people of the world despite their sins and rebellion. God is now allowing the world to go its own way in darkness, in rebellion, in ignorance. But eventually, every human being will come face to face with their creator. Every human being will come face to face with God himself and The Bible tells us or indicates that most will repent if they have not repented before that time that they will repent when confronted directly by God. Paul became an apostle and through his ministry untold numbers were converted and have been converted down through the ages through his writings and his example that we have a record of. Yet like the rest of us, Paul started out as a sinner, as an enemy of God. Indeed, Paul considered himself the chief of sinners because prior to his conversion, he had persecuted and murdered Christians. When Stephen, a man the Bible says was full of the Holy Spirit and who had been ordained a deacon, when Stephen was testifying before the Sanhedrin, they became enraged by his testimony, and they led him out of the city. It says in verse 58 of Acts 7, they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. This Saul was the same person who later was converted and who, whose name was changed to Paul and who wrote much of the New Testament became an apostle of Christ. But it says in Acts chapter 8 verse 1, Now Saul, the same person who later became an apostle, was consenting to his death. He was approving in approval of what was being done here in in the murdering of Stephen. And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. This was a a severe persecution of the church where people had to flee for their lives and leave their belongings behind, in many cases. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. In Acts 9, verse 1, we read, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, that is, who were Christians, whether men or women, He might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he was on this mission to ferret out and arrest Christians and bring them bound to Jerusalem so they could be tried and cast into prison or possibly murdered. In verse 3, it says, He came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So here Paul Saul was confronted in a most unusual way. Very few people down in, through history have been confronted directly by God in this manner. But the fact that God did directly confront Saul led to an immediate and profound change in Saul's attitude, a complete change in The course of his life. And as I mentioned earlier, he was renamed Paul and he yielded to the will of God in his life. Where he had been an enemy of God, murdering God's people, he was more or less instantly converted. And his life took a complete 180 degree turn in its direction. Later, Paul said in verse Timothy 1, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief however for this reason i obtained mercy that in me first jesus christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life what jesus christ did in directly confronting saul and having it recorded for us to read about serves as a pattern for how God is going to deal with every single human being sooner or later. Now, very few people in history have been confronted in this way directly by God. Now, Jesus Christ came and He preached the gospel, and He sent out other men to preach the gospel, and they did so. In fact, we're told in the Scriptures that every single person on the earth living in that generation... Heard the message of the gospel, and they were called to repentance. And we read also in Acts seventeen that God calls all men now to re- calls upon all men now to repent. But He has not, to this point, confronted men in the way that He confronted Saul. And so most men, although many have been given an opportunity to repent, have been called to repentance they have rejected that calling and they have refused to repent and gone on in their way of sin and rebellion against God. But the time is coming when that circumstance will change. In Romans 14, verse 11, it says, For as it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God Then each of us shall give account of himself to God." Now how many people do you think when they come face to face with God, perhaps in the resurrection, will refuse to believe in God? How many do you think will want to continue on in rebellion against God when they come face to face with God? Now, there will undoubtedly be some. but. Notice what we read in Ezekiel 37 and verse 13 where it speaks of a resurrection in the future. This resurrection will actually occur after the millennium. This will be a resurrection of physical human beings, people who have lived and died as physical human beings. And they will be resurrected as physical human beings. And when they come out of the ground, so to speak... God gives them a body of flesh and blood, restores life to them. We read in verse 13, Then you shall know that I am the Lord when I have opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up from your graves. There won't be any doubt then As to whether God exists, there won't be any doubt as to who is God or which God is really God. God says, At that time, you will know that I am the Lord when I've opened your graves. And those people will stand before God in the resurrection, they will know that God is the Lord the eternal, the ever-living one, the creator of mankind and the ruler of the universe. And they will be standing there to give account to God and God will, if they are willing, grant them repentance. And it goes on to tell us in that same chapter that he will enter into an everlasting covenant with them. They will enter into the covenant, the new covenant, be granted be granted God's spirit and eternal life. Now, some may ask, if God loves me, why am I having to endure the trials that I'm suffering from? Perhaps it might be a bad marriage, or being a victim of abuse, or sickness, or any of a myriad of other trials and afflictions that people suffer from in this life that often constitute travail and affliction. Many people, many vast numbers of people down through the ages have suffered abuse and oppression. Over in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, notice what it says. You know, the Jews during World War II were denounced by the Nazis and were propagandized as heinously evil, worse than the worst kind of vermin, were persecuted and finally several million of them were systematically murdered. Many cast into into concentration camps where they suffered for months and sometimes years before they finally expired. Here in Ecclesiastes 4 and verse 1 it says, Then I returned and considered all the oppression that is done under the sun. Considering all the oppression that's done under the sun, that's that's a pretty large undertaking because there has been a vast amount of oppression done under the sun. And look, the tears of the oppressed, but they have no comforter. On the side of their oppressors there is power, but they have no comforter. No advocate, no one to take up their cause, no deliverer, no one to even comfort them. And so many people in this condition have wondered if there is a God or in some cases completely dismissed the idea that God could even exist. Many people have expressed the idea that that there couldn't possibly be a God because he wouldn't allow such things to happen. Has happened to the Jews, for example, in their concentration camps or happened to many people who were brought over to this country and other countries as slaves. People have been enslaved down through the the ages. Actually, the vast majority of mankind down through history have been slaves of one sort or another, have been living in oppression. We have an article about that on our website. Has God been blind to what has happened to mankind? Their situation, the situation of people in such a circumstance is so hopeless or seemingly hopeless, so awful, so horrible. Solomon wrote, therefore, I praised the dead who were already dead more than the living who are still alive. He's speaking of people who are in this condition. Yes, better than both is he who who has never existed, who has not seen the evil work that is done under the sun. There are people who are living in such horrible, awful circumstances that death would literally be better than life, much better in many cases. And so people have asked, where's God? Such people probably have wondered or Perhaps express the thought to themselves, if if not to others, God couldn't possibly love me. Otherwise, why would he allow me to exist in such pain and suffering and hopelessness? But those people will be resurrected and they will know God and their years of being oppressed, their tears, their sorrow will be a thing of the past. Their suffering will be a thing of the past. But people who live in suffering and ask such questions, the Bible answers those questions. Now, many people don't really... They ask the questions, but they they draw their conclusions without really even going to the source which could answer their questions. Or if they do go there, they don't really read it carefully and understand the answers. But God is not the one who originated the kind of suffering that has existed among human beings on the earth. That's not what God wanted for mankind. It is mankind who has chosen a way of life guaranteed to produce travail and suffering. And God warned them not to go in that direction. But they chose that path of suffering and death anyway, despite God's warnings. And mankind has been walking down that same path ever since. It was not God who cast the Jews into concentration camps and murdered them by the millions. It wasn't God who did that, it was human beings who did that. It's not God who has enslaved mankind down through history, it's human beings who have enslaved other humans because that's the way, that's the path that mankind has chosen. Why does God get the blame for the things that are done by other people? God didn't do any of those things. He's allowed it to happen, but that's the path that man chose, that man preferred to the path that God advised him to take. In Genesis 3 and verse 17, To Adam, God said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake, and toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. This tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, actually represents a way of life chosen by Adam and Eve based on them figuring out what rules they would live by. They didn't want to live under God's rules. They wanted to make up their own own rules. And that's what mankind has been doing. Making up his own rules to live by. And we see the consequences in the history of mankind. God told, him, told Adam both thorns and thistles, that shall bring forth to you and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you shall return. God had told Adam that if he took that path, he would be subject to death. And in Romans 5 verse 12, it says, Just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all sinned. The trials that we suffer, that the world has suffered down through history, have been brought on by sin, at least to a very large extent. Our sins or the sins of others are what are responsible for most of the trials that we have to endure. God allows suffering to teach mankind important lessons about the nature of sin and the value of righteousness. Now by saying that our suffering is brought on by sin does not necessarily mean that if you're suffering a trial that God is punishing you specifically for some fault or sin of your own. That is not necessarily the case and it often may not be the case at all. Stephen wasn't murdered because... He had some sin or fault that God was punishing him for. He was murdered because other people were sinning and were opposed to the fact that he was faithful to God and was expressing his faith in a particular manner. Lazarus, the beggar who endured disease and abject poverty, was not less righteous than the rich man at whose gate he was laid. In fact, it was Lazarus who wound up in Abraham's bosom in the resurrection. And the rich man who had more than anyone could ask for in this lifetime, he was the one cast into the lake of fire. So we ought not to be quick to judge people who are going through trials and conclude that they must have some horrible secret sin or or guilt or otherwise they wouldn't be enduring that suffering. That's not the case often, but the fact remains that sin does lead to suffering and it produces suffering and death. There may be all sorts of circumstances and reasons that various individuals become victims of catastrophe or unfortunate circumstances. And sometimes it may be their fault or partially their fault, or maybe not at all their fault. Often we're just like some animal caught in a net. But what is certain about suffering is that if we endure it, and remember that Jesus Christ himself suffered horribly and was allowed to to endure that suffering, but he endured it in faith and if we endure suffering in faith as Jesus Christ did, then God can use our trials to build character. In Romans 5 and verse 3, Paul wrote, We also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. You know, if 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 you're if you're facing difficulty or an obstacle, and you just give up because there's an obstacle or you're having a difficult time reaching your goal, would that be to your advantage to behave in that manner? When we have tribulation and we persevere, we keep pursuing pursuing the goal despite the obstacles that helps us develop a habit of mind that will be very profitable, not only in this age, but no doubt in the age to come. Tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance, character, and character, hope. This is is how we can handle trials in a way that makes them profitable to us and to God to fulfill His purpose in us, to persevere in the face of trials and tribulations. And from the character that is developed, we have hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who or which as it should be was given to us. See, the love of God is not absent because there are trials. Having a trial does not indicate an absence of God's love and as we endure trials the love of God is being expressed in and through us the love that God pours out in our hearts the love that he has that comes from his spirit if we understand that trials and tribulation are a part of life a part of our lot as human beings and that we are expected to endure trials in patience and faith, the trials that we suffer cannot separate us from God's love and should never be a source of doubt about the love that God has toward us. Romans 8 verse 35 says, "...who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. Now, all of these things, any and all of these things, can be very serious trials. People caught up in war zones, people driven from their homes and having to leave all their belongings behind, people being persecuted and murdered because of their beliefs, people enduring famine and various other kinds of difficulties, does that separate us from the love of Christ? As it is written, For your sake we are killed. All the day long we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Down through history, if you study the history of God's people, the the people of faith down through history have more often than not been severely persecuted and often murdered. Just as The Christians were at the time that Saul and others were driving them out of Jerusalem and arresting and murdering some of them. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Note that God has allowed people to go through these difficulties some of the most severe kinds of difficulties anyone could imagine, including being a victim of murder. And yet it says that God loved loved us or loves us. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. God allows trials. Trials are part of God's plan. Now, the world would have a much easier time if it actually obeyed God. There would be many fewer trials. But trials are no proof of an absence of God's love. There's every assurance from Scripture that God loves us all, that God loves each of us individually as well as all of us collectively, no matter what our individual circumstances in life might be. And I've known some people who have endured suffering pretty much their entire lives, people of faith who've endured incredible suffering. And yet, those people are loved by God just as is everybody else. And their sufferings will come to an end. And according to what we read there, their character will be stronger because of the sufferings that they have endured. Now, let's turn the question around, though, for a moment and ask Do you love God? How does God measure or judge whether we love him or not? Does God wonder if we love him? Of course, God being God knows whether we do or not, but we need to to have the answer to this question too. Do, Do I as an individual, as a person, do I love God? Many people, if you ask them this question, would answer in the affirmative without hesitation. Of course I love God they would say. But how can that be judged? Do they really love God? How does God measure that love? Is it by a mere profession of love toward him? Is that sufficient evidence to God that we love him because we say we love him? Is lip service all that God requires to be assured of our love for him? God's word tells us very clearly how he measures our love for him. And it is not by lip service. It's not by a mere profession of love for God. It is by obedience to his commandments and by the fruits of our lives. That's how God measures our love for him. Over and over again, love toward God is directly connected with keeping his commandments. This It's a theme that's repeated throughout the Bible. In Deuteronomy 11, verse 1, we read, Therefore you shall love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his judgments, and his commandments always. Notice how we are told to love God here by keeping his commandments, his statutes, his judgments, the things that he tells us to do. Obedience to him. In verse 13, it shall be that if you earnestly obey my commandments, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. Again, we see loving God equated to keeping his commandments. In verse 22, if you carefully keep all these commandments, which I command you to do, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and to hold fast to him. Again, we see the commandments, obedience to God, walking in His ways. That's what love for God is. That's how it's expressed. And there are many similar scriptures in both the Old and New Testaments that tell us that loving God is expressed through the keeping of His commandments. In John 14, verse 15, Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. In verse 21 of John 14, Jesus said, He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. How could you get any plainer than that? And yet people want to claim to be Christians and people want to say they love Jesus, but they want nothing to do with God's commandments or they think that they have an excuse for breaking God's commandments. Loving God requires that we love other people. Of course, loving other people is among God's commandments. But that is another way in which God judges our love for Him. In First John 4 and verse 21, And this commandment which we have from Him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. And doing that, loving our brother, loving other people is likewise measured by our obedience to God's commandments. John, 1 John 5 verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God. Other people. When we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God. That we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. There are many specific ways in which this requirement comes into play, this requirement to obey God through keeping his commandments. And the Bible is filled with practical examples of acts which exemplify the principles involved in exercising love through the keeping of the commandments. The commandments are given to us for our good, for our well-being. The commandments themselves are a powerful demonstration of God's Love toward mankind. Never doubt that God loves you and never forget how God measures your love for him.